0: As you undoubtedly are aware, we're going through this series on the church. Over the last several weeks, we looked first and foremost at how God brings a person to salvation, how the Father reveals to him the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior from Matthew chapter 16, and based upon Peter's profession of faith in Christ, Jesus gives an an enormous responsibility to Peter. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and I'm going to build my church. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and what you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. What you let loose on earth will have already been let loose in heaven. Then last week, we saw the opposite side of that. We focused primarily on binding. But last week, we looked and we saw that there's also a loosing that's involved. When an individual's lifestyle does not correspond with a true faith relationship with Jesus Christ, as painful and as difficult as it is, and as much as we are rare to practice this and hope never, if at all possible, to do it, the scriptures do ask that we... Remove individuals who are not truly walking with the Lord, who are not truly surrendered to him in a faith relationship from the church. Jesus' statement in Matthew 18 is, If your brother sins against you, go and confront him, just you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen to you, then take it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church as... Jesus uses the, uh, the cultural trappings around him, the pre- ingrained prejudice of, of tax collectors and Gentiles. He says, if he does not listen to the church, then let him be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile, which is Christ's way, speaking in that particular culture of saying that you need to ostracize him. We saw there are two reasons from that for that from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, namely for his ultimate salvation and for the purity of the church. Now, this all begs the question, how does the church do this? Uh, Are there actual practical guidelines laid down for how we as a congregation make those types of decisions? And there are. But the process that scripture lays out, as you can imagine, isn't always pleasant. It isn't always fun. It does involve on occasion an element of tediousness and drudgery. I'm speaking of the congregation coming together and voting as the Lord is leading us. If you've ever been in a congregational business meeting, you know that there's a great number of things that we find to be tedious, that take a lot of time, we don't want to sit and listen to all of that, and yet, it's my conviction that that is exactly what Scripture would have us to do. We as Baptists practice what we call a congregational form of church governance, meaning that ultimately this church as a congregation, the people coming together as one, united, they make decisions together. Not everybody appreciates that form of church governance. Now, I'm going to read to you a a post, an article that was written by a man that I actually consider to be my friend, and I'm not going to tell you who it is because he has since repented from the time that he actually wrote this article. It's one of those articles that you write in the heat of the moment, maybe late at night when you're stewing over things, and you, you regret it, and you wish you could take it back. We've all been there and done that, said or done things we wished we, as soon as we had said it, we wished we could take back. So I'm not going to tell you who this is that wrote this, but I'm going to read this article to you. The title of the article is, Congregational Government is from Satan. Those are strong words. I mean, just the title alone grabs your attention. This is something that Baptists have been practicing for 450 years, give or take. And we're told in the title that it's satanic. Here's the article. That's right. It's actually the title to a book that I have had percolating in my mind for a long time. After almost 30 years in ministry, I have come irreversibly to this conclusion. Congregational government government is an invention and tool of Satan, the enemy of our souls, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Well, it's pretty clear. Tell us what you really think, you know? I mean, don't hold back now. I I want you to be straight with me. He offers several points to be very specific about what he's talking about. Point number one, congregational meetings are forums for nothing but division. When church life is going well, the leaders of the church struggle to get a quorum for decision-making. And I, I have seen that. I don't think that there's anyone who would deny that. When things are going very wrong, however... Every carnal church member lines up at the microphone to spew their venom and destroy the work of Christ in the church. I saw it growing up, and I've seen it since, in the churches that are fighting to survive, to do something courageous for their future. Good people being held hostage by bad people. Minorities hijacking the majority because a set of bylaws get higher regard than the scriptures. He puts bylaws in scare quotes. Satan does want to rip the church unity to shreds like a devouring lion, and he is accomplishing that again and again and again through a system of church government which elevates the fleshly and the worldly to a status of influence equal to the most spiritually and biblically minded in any congregation. For those of you who are walking in late, I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't agree with this article, okay? I've seen some of you walking through the door as I'm going along here. I am reading an article this is not the introduction. This is not my thesis, okay? I don't want... I, I saw some members walk in a little late. and We could get off to the wrong foot if you don't understand what's going on here, okay? So just be aware of that. I'm reading an article. This does not reflect my views. Point number two, voting is not biblical. The right to vote may be an American right given by the United States Constitution, but it is not a kingdom right given in the Word of God. It may be a tradition of some wonderful streams of church history, such as the Baptists and the Anabaptists, but it is not biblical. And that's really the crux of the issue, stepping away from the article for the moment. We just want to do what is biblical. There is not a shred of biblical evidence for a congregation voting on what its direction should be, but many church members believe it is their God-given right. God-given right is in scare quotes. It is their God-given right to stand in judgment over the pastors and the deacons that are seeking to lead them. Okay, point number four. Congregationalism crushes pastors. Statistics tell us that a pastor moves every two to three years from his church and that a pastor typically leaves a church because of only eight people. If you wonder how it is possible that just eight people can so resist and refuse and ruin the calling of a gifted and trained messenger of the gospel, then you haven't spent much time in a congregational business meeting. Just one, past, one, sorry, one deacon's wife or one women's ministry director or one chairman of the building and grounds committee can consume a pastor and erode the support he needs to serve the church well. A lot of the men writing today in favor of congregational government defend it as a tradition. Now that's another really good point. Is this a tradition or is it biblical? A lot of good men write in defense of the congregational government and as a tradition, and are so effective as leaders that they are able to suppress the inevitable uprising of carnality. But that is not so in the, vast, in the vast majority of small, congregationally stifled churches. I could retire now if I had banked at least $100 for every time a pastor wept to me on the phone or in person about the crushing weight of a local church boss, church boss in scare quotes, who would not listen to scripture or reason or God's Holy Spirit. Many of the pastors who have come into our church these past years have come seeking a new form of church governance that frees them from the tyranny of the untrained and the untrainable. If you haven't noticed, there's a little bit of bitterness wrapped up in this article, don't you think? He concludes, down with congregational governance. Down with it. Not the people who believe in it or, its, or appreciate its history, not the good or bad people who try to function well in a bad system. No, down with the system itself. Let's send a congregational government back to hell where it came from. It's unbiblical, unhealthy, and it is a tool of Satan for the discouragement of good pastors and local churches everywhere. So there are a couple of questions that are presented to us as we encounter this contrary opinion. Is it unbiblical? Does it crush pastors? Does Satan use it as a tool for division within the church? Now he mentions there's not one shred of biblical evidence. Let's look at the biblical evidence. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We find Paul writing what is the fourth letter in a series of letters. You'll notice that we don't have two of them. We just have the first and we have the sorry, the second and the fourth letter here. And we don't have the other two. Those have been lost to us over the course of time. This letter references the third letter. Again, we don't have the third letter, so there are some details that are missing in our correspondence between the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth. But you recall last week when we considered the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man in the church at Corinth who believed genuinely that it was okay for him, as a follower of Christ, to have a sexually intimate relationship with his stepmother. And of course, when Paul writes to confront that, when Paul writes to address that, when Paul says, you are called to put this man out of your fellowship for the destruction of his flesh in order that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord, he's he's again pursuing not a punitive retribution. He is pursuing true reconciliation. When he says to do that, undoubtedly, if we can put ourselves in that situation, this individual is not too pleased. His stepmom isn't going to be too pleased. I mean, you can imagine their reaction upon hearing, number one, that the Apostle Paul has written us a letter. Oh, great. Paul is writing us a letter. What does he say? Hey, I hear there's a guy there sleeping with his stepmother. If you're in the church business meeting when this letter is being read, everybody's turning and looking at you. There's no hiding from that accusation. And Paul's instruction is very clear. When you are assembled together in the name of our Lord, my spirit is present, you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, I move to do church discipline. Anybody going to second that motion? When it comes time for discussion, what do you suppose their response will be? They're not going to be pleased that the Apostle Paul has just asked all their friends, people they consider to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to remove them from the church. And they're undoubtedly going to stand up and say, you know what, this Apostle Paul, he doesn't know anything about Jesus. He doesn't know anything about grace. He doesn't know anything about forgiveness or the liberty that we have in Jesus. In fact, I think that he's not really an apostle at all. If you can't argue on the basis of Scripture, you always attack the man. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul isn't a real apostle we shouldn't listen to anything that Paul has to say. So now within the church, you have division over whether or not it's appropriate to engage in sexual morality. But on top of that, you now have division over whether or not Paul should be listened to. The church, and it'll become clear as we look at this letter here in just a second, the church, after praying about it, talking about it, discussing it, Ultimately, sided with the instruction that the Apostle Paul said. You guys are not walking with the Lord and we do need to remove you from the church. What was the outcome of that situation? This man wanted to come back. He repented after a period of time and we don't know what the interval of time is here but he repented and he said, I want to come back. It was wrong what I did. And I want to be restored to the church. Now, the church heard that and observed his repentance, noted that he was no longer sleeping with his stepmother. And a majority of the church said, yeah, let's welcome this guy back. But there was a group of people there that said, no, 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 no. What he did was really, really wrong. And they want to twist the screws, so to speak. Say, we don't want to welcome him back into our church just yet. This is the environment in which Paul begins to write. Look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me. Okay, Paul's alluding to the fact that these individuals smeared him, they slandered him, they tried to besmirch his character. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you, okay? He's hurt everyone in the church through his actions, through his behavior, through the things he said, the things he's done. He has caused pain to all of you. Verse 6, For such a one, this individual who's done this thing, the punishment by the majority is enough, or it is sufficient, based on the translation you're reading. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul is saying that what this individual did, he didn't just hurt me, really, he hurt all of you. He hurt the entire church. Now, what the majority of the church has decided in terms of the punishment that this man deserves, that is sufficient. So what the majority determined, that's good enough so you should turn and you should forgive this man. And notice the way that he words it. He says you should forgive him or he, the man who did the wrong, may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now verse 8, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul is not ordering them to do this He is literally begging them. He is not exerting an apostolic authority over them. He is not saying, you have to let this guy back into your church. He is saying they should. He is saying that they ought to. He is providing reasons, but ultimately he is asking them to. Begging them, in fact, but not commanding them. Note that. It goes a little further. Verse 9, for this is why I wrote, previous letter, this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, and um, this doesn't really show up clearly in your English translations, but again, reverting to my Texas idiosyncrasies, anyone whom y'all forgive, it's in the plural, anyone whom y'all forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for y'all's sake, Okay in the presence of Christ, that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So the first question that is raised by our article is voting biblical. There's no way that you read verse 6 and come to any other conclusion. Notice the word that is so critical there, the word majority. Did you notice that word? Look with me again. Verse 6, for such a one, the individual who's committed this indiscretion, for such a one as that, the punishment by the majority is sufficient. Now, this is a Greek word which is a very, very interesting word. I've done in-depth word studies on this word just to make sure that I understand exactly what's being said here. And I'm not going to bore you with all those details. It's a bunch of linguistic mumbo-jumbo. Suffice it to say that in your translation, it is translated 100% accurately. It means majority. We don't find too many uses of this word in the New Testament, but we do find it here. If you look at this word in the ancient Roman world as it is used in the first century, you will find copious uses of it within what is the Republic of Rome. Now, at the time of the writing of this letter, Rome isn't really a republic. It is a dictatorship. It is presided over by Caesar. But at its founding it was established as a republic there were to be senators who would make decisions and whenever those senators reached a decision their decision was described as plionion the greek word here they have come to a majority decision what that implies is that you have a certain defined number of senators And you can count them. If there are 100 senators, a majority would be, the meaning of the word literally is the greater or greatest part of the whole, which means 51%. Okay? You guys tracking with that? I'm not getting too technical here. They could count 100 senators or whatever the number of senators was that was in the Republic of Rome, and they could say, now what does the greater part of this group say? And the greatest part, the the bare minimum you have to have a majority, is 51%, or out of 100, 51 senators. Now, the word implies two things. Number one, it implies that you can count everybody's vote. It also implies that there is a very clearly defined understanding of who is in and who is out. If you're going to be able to calculate 51%, you have to be able to know what constitutes the totality. In other words, you have to know what the number is that adds up to 100% if you're going to find the 51%. Paul's clear understanding as he's writing this letter is that this church made a decision about what to do with this unrepentant man who is actually now repenting based upon some understanding of of the individuals who were joined to that church body. There's no other way to read that verse. When our friend writes his article and he says, you will not find a shred of biblical evidence for voting anywhere in the New Testament, I come here to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, and I have a hard time seeing any other understanding of that situation that would make sense of that particular verse. Not only do you find evidence for it, what you find is that there's no other understanding, as far as the church in Corinth is concerned, about how they're going to conduct major decisions, such as the inclusion, or in this case, the exclusion of members to and from the fellowship of the church. Do you guys see that? I hope that you do. But just in case you don't, an argument is presented... Say, so, okay, you got this one verse here, but there are so many verses in the Bible, you know uh, you what, know, we can't be definitive on the basis of this one verse. Now, my personal belief is that if God just says something once, that's enough. You can hear it, and it's said once, and that's a clear understanding of how things need to happen. But I will grant the premise that that suggestion, that argument could be made stronger if we could find other verses that support it, which we do. Go with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm not going to show you all of these. Wow, look at the time. I'm looking at the clock. I'm surprised at the time. (laughs) I will try to hustle. (laughs) Acts chapter 6. The church in Jerusalem is off to a wonderful start. They're off to a wonderful start. Things are going well. And of course, there is a problem with the distribution of food to the widows. You have Jewish widows and you have Greek widows, they're, they're Jewish, but they're, they're what we would call Hellenists. They're not from Jerusalem. They're from the Greek-speaking world, but they're, they're still primarily Jewish. These are all Jews gathered together in Jerusalem, a part of the church in Jerusalem. And so the, the Greek-speaking Jews, they feel like they're being neglected. And so the apostles come together and they say, what should we do about this? And here's the proposal that they put forward. You will look with me in verse 3 this is what the apostles say to the church in Jerusalem verse 3 brothers pick out from among yourselves seven men of a good reputation full of the holy spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty verse 4 but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word verse 5 and what they said pleased the whole gathering okay now look at the word whole that's a greek word has a meaning the meaning is 100%. The totality, the maximum number that are there agree with the stating, with, this, with the uh, proposition that Peter has put forward, the statement that he makes. He says what, what they said, what the apostles said, pleased the total gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and he goes on to list all the names. Now, if you're looking carefully at the text, the text says that the proposal that the apostles made pleased the whole gathering. Now, let's just play a mind experiment for a moment. Let us say that at the conclusion of the worship service today, which is coming faster than I care for, (laughs) I go home and I, on Twitter or Facebook or some other form of social media, put it out there, the whole church agreed with my sermon today. Is that a true statement? Well, I hope it is. But do I know that it's a true statement? No, I don't actually know that. How would I know that? I mean, you're sitting here, and you might be agreeing with everything I've said up until this point. But do you know whether the person sitting next to you agrees? Okay, maybe some of you do. That's good. You're all that's, that's good. Good. I like that. Amen. Right on. That's what we call unity. That's where this sermon is going. Anyway, some of you would agree, and some of you would know that some of the other individuals around you agree, but nobody in this room is going to know what every person in this room thinks. How do you find that out? How do you find out what everybody in the room thinks unless you take the time to ask everybody in the room? Now, is this a vote? Are we putting things on ballots? Are we turning in ballots to our local, you know, our, our nearest deacon or whoever? I mean, how is this tabulated? The scriptures don't give us any indication, but this is what the Bible says. Guys, we want to appoint some deacons to serve you. What do you think? And the Bible says everybody was on board. This is being written by Luke. Luke isn't present for this discussion, okay? Okay. So somebody says to Luke in the early days, this is how it happened, and uh, everybody was on board. So Luke writes it down. We don't know how they came to that understanding, but you either understand that the word of God is completely true and completely accurate, and if you hold to that proposition, there is no other way around this verse either that in some form, in some measure, they came to an understanding of what every single person gathered there in Jerusalem believed. Now, this also speaks to another criticism that I've heard. The larger the church grows, the more impossible it becomes to do congregational voting. Brothers and sisters, they had 3,000 people here at the church in Jerusalem, maybe more than that, maybe upwards of 5,000. We don't know the exact number. But the Bible is clear. Everybody liked the idea. And how do you find out how 5,000 people feel about an idea unless in some form, in some fashion, they all said what they thought? I've been to the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the largest Protestant denomination, uh, evangel—I should say—evangelical denomination in North America. I've been to the convention. I've been in a room full of 10,000 people, and we can understand what those 10,000 people think. It takes a long time, about an hour and a half, but it is possible, and I've seen it done. Where. All of the messengers from all of the churches as they gather together in a room upwards of 10,000 people through a balloting process have voiced how they feel about a particular issue. The Bible says it was happening here. I've seen it happen in modern day life. And so the reality is it doesn't matter how large our church grows, it can be done. Okay? Let's look at the next verse. I'm going to skip a little bit. I just want you to know I'm skipping over about three or four references. Go with me to Acts chapter 15. Here is a critical issue, doctrine. Not just any doctrine, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and a few other guys, they're in the church at Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, and there are some people that come from Jerusalem and say, believing in Jesus is wonderful, but you also have to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas, this is text, says they had no small disagreement, no small dispute. So they go down. They are appointed by the church to go down to the church of Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and the elders about this matter. Okay, so they go down. Acts chapter 15 isn't necessary to be circumcised. There's all this testimony that's given. Undoubtedly, the pastors and the apostles play a leading role in the discussion. The brightest trained theological minds take the lead, and they verbalize what their thoughts are. Different individuals speak. But you will notice what the conclusion of the matter is. Look down at verse 22. Acts 15, verse 22. They come to a resolution. No, you do not have to be circumcised. You just believe in Jesus. Verse 22 They said, we need to say this, we need to share this decision with our brothers and sisters at the church in Antioch. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders, which is another word for pastor, with, notice the word again, the whole church. The whole church. How does the whole church say that they are in agreement with that? How do you know that? How do you write that? And this is not some trivial question about, you know, whether or not to change a light bulb in the sanctuary. We're talking about the heart of the gospel. We're talking about the doctrine of salvation. And the whole church is said to have come to an agreement on this, and they agree with what the elders and the apostles are saying, and together they're going to send word to the church at Antioch. It goes further. It says, choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and then it goes on to talk about the individuals that they appointed. But you'll notice the reference again, the whole church. If I go home and I post it on my Facebook or my Twitter or whatever, hey, the whole church loved my message this morning. That's an incredibly presumptuous statement unless somehow I take a survey or we do a vote or something and I can understand that the whole church truly does support what I'm saying. We've seen it on two separate occasions here, and there would have been others, but I'm skipping over those for the sake of time third reference that I want you to notice. Go with me to Galatians chapter 1. Notice what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Sorry, tail end of verse 2. He says, Paul, an apostle, to the churches of Galatia. There's more than one church in the province of Galatia. To the churches in Galatia. Okay? Now, the whole book of Galatians, again, is addressing this issue of what is necessary for salvation. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. But notice what Paul says here in the opening chapter. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, But even if we, which is Paul and his companions, the missionaries who preach the gospel, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached, in other words, the one you already heard, let him be accursed, Greek word anathema. The word accursed here means let him be doomed to hell. Verse 9. In case you thought you were not reading it right the first time, he's going to repeat it. Okay? As we have said before in the previous sentence, so now I say again. And you notice he goes from the we to the me. We say to you, we preach to you. Now, I'm saying this, as we have said before. Now, I, Paul, am saying to you, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, let's play another mind game. Don't think apple. What's the first thing you're thinking about right now? Orange, okay. For those of us who are really paying attention, when I say don't think apple... You're thinking Apple. I'm sorry, you're paying attention. You're playing games. I didn't mean that the way it came out. Not not to say you're not paying attention. I apologize. For those of you who are tracking with me, when I say don't think Apple, you're going to think Apple. So when the Apostle Paul says, if I'm preaching to you a a wrong gospel, accursed me, me, denounce me as a heretic going to hell. Well, what's the first thing you're going to do? you're going to question whether or not Paul is actually preaching the right gospel. Paul is indirectly inviting the churches of Galatia to sit in judgment on his doctrine. And he's saying, very specifically, it's in the imperative verb form, if I am preaching the wrong thing to you, something different than what I've already preached to you, he's affirming what he has initially said, what the gospel is, but if I'm saying anything different than that, what I've already said, then you, it's in the plural, going Texan here, y'all, accursed that man. Who's the letter written to? It's not written to pastors. It's not written to deacons. It's written to churches. In other words, Paul is saying, you, the church, you, the individuals, you, as you come together as a body, you are responsible for ascertaining whether or not what the preacher is saying is right or wrong, and if it's heretical, you, the church as a whole, have a responsibility to come together, to unite, and make a statement about that. And if it's the wrong gospel, you're called to make the strongest possible statement, that it is heretical. That such a person who preaches that deserves damnation. Those are bold words. We come back now to 2 Corinthians and Paul's statement here to this church at Corinth. He says, You know, for such a one as this, the punishment by the majority is sufficient. What the church has decided, the 51% of you, and the only way you can wrap your mind around that is if you understand who's in and who's out, what constitutes the body of Christ, who's an official member, whatever terminology you want to use. You can come to a totality, and within that totality, you can understand in some form or measure. And I fully agree the word vote doesn't occur anywhere in the New Testament, the word ballot doesn't occur anywhere in the New Testament. And I personally give God all the glory for that. You recall the 2000 presidential, American presidential election, in which Vice President Al Gore lost the election by about 500 votes. And there was an unbelievable controversy surrounding this concept of a hanging chad. They would punch little holes in the ballots, and the little perforated card would pop out, but one of the little perforations wouldn't, you know, let go, and it would just kind of hang there. And they would say, it's a hanging chad. And well, there's all this debate. Can you imagine if the Lord had said to us, this is how you vote? And he went into great detail about ballots and chads and all of this sort of thing. What that would do to us as a church that would just be unbelievable insanity i thank the lord that he mentioned not one thing about ballots or hanging chads or you know laid out any kind of process for how we could do this but what he did say what the lord is saying through the apostle paul is very clear what the majority decides that's sufficient that's all that is necessary i'm a little bit jazzed about being a congregationalist as you can tell and um I have many more things I could say about this topic, uh, and I actually do have many more things that need to be said about this topic. I don't have the time to say them to you today. Church, we'll come back to this next week, but this is what I want you to understand. God has called us to be one. That's the truth of it. This is where we're going to go next week. The suggestion is made that anytime you vote, any time you put a decision or a question to the church congregation, the inescapable, unavoidable conclusion is that people are going to get angry and upset with each other and they're not going to be able to talk to each other anymore. The statement is made that anytime time you put a question to the congregation for a decision, you are ultimately dividing the church, you are going to divide the congregation, and it's a tool that Satan uses to divide the church. I freely agree with that statement. Any time we come to a decision, it absolutely can be used by Satan to divide us from one another. But let us consider the alternative. If we never come together and speak together if we never come together and consider important matters together, if we never, one by one, to a man, to a woman, in the room, those who are members of the church, if we never verbalize what we think, what we are convinced God is telling us from his word, how we are persuaded that the Lord is leading us, if we never say that, and if we never put together a process or some sort of a way of doing that, Do we have unity? We might, but how do we know? You see, I fully recognize that any time we come together as a congregation to vote on something, it's an opportunity for division, but I also recognize the opposite. Every time we come together to vote on something, it's an opportunity for unity. It absolutely is a time where we can come together as one. To avoid the question, to set aside the whole process of speaking to each other and just saying, you know what, we just don't need to think about these things. We don't need to discuss these things. It will make for a more peaceful coexistence. I've been to my fair share of rough and tumble business meetings, as I know many of you have as well. But based on our walk with the Lord to this point in our lives, would you say that it's his primary goal to make sure that we have nothing but total peace and tranquility every single day? Does that sound like him? No. Does he usually put us into difficult and challenging circumstances in order to refri- to refine us and to purify us? Absolutely. Does he want to draw us together with his son in a greater intimacy? Absolutely. Does he want to draw us closer together with each other in a greater unity? Absolutely. And as I've pondered and meditated on these things for many, many years, while it is possible for Satan to use a congregational vote to wreak havoc in the church, we can't actually know where we are in our unity with each other unless we come to the table and we consider the question, and as an individual, man by man, woman by woman, we say this is how we think the Lord is leading us. My exhortation to you, church, would be this. Strive, as it says as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace that's what we're called to do and the scriptures give us practical guidance in how we are to do it so my prayer for you is that we're coming up on a business meeting here at the end of the month i know that we've all been to business meetings where we were actually talking about changing a light bulb And I fully admit that sometimes tedious things come to your attention that don't really need to be considered by the congregation as a whole. But even though we sometimes have to consider tedious business, the practice of discussion, the practice of talking, even when it is over small and trivial matters, is still the practice that God uses to draw us together. So even though you may prefer not to talk about the topic at hand, my prayer is that you would always love the process that God has us in. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that you say to us in your word. And Lord, we know that the purpose that you have laid out, we, we clearly see this, and we'll see this next week, Lord, as we ponder more carefully the rest of this passage Lord, we know that um, you use this process of determining the majority within our church. You use this exhortation that Paul gives here in terms of being okay with what the majority has determined. Acknowledging that majority decision is sufficient. You use that to work in our hearts a greater unity and a holiness and a peacefulness and an ability to work together that without this process, we would not have. We thank you for that, Lord. And God, my prayer is that you would help all of us as your people to give ourselves to that task, that process, that we would be more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray you'd work among us. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.